0: Hello and welcome to At The 55, your home for OUA football. I'm Zachary Bader-Shamai. I'm Eddie Meredith. How you doing, buddy? Uh, uh, you know, yeah, recovering. Yeah, you're recovering. Well, we've hit the end of the road. Unfortunately, Eddie, our OUA representative, your Western Mustangs, fell to the now champion Laval Rouge or in the 54th Vanier Cup. So we're going to be here to talk about everything Banye Cup, Uh, a little recap action. Any just initial thoughts you want to throw out there? Uh, nope, not really. I mean, I, we have thoughts, yeah. but in terms of just anything off, off the, the cuff, top. it's it,
1: tough loss. Yeah, wasn't Western's best game. Obviously, lots of stuff that they need to fix. But it just that's what happens when you play Laval. If they play their best game and you don't play your best game, you're gonna lose.
0: Yeah, well, it was an excellent game by Laval, and you know a, a solid, solid uh, outing. Well, a good attempt for Western out there. And we're gonna so again going to get into that game. We're going to take a look at the all-Canadian list and the other major award winners. Uh, for- we're going to talk about what's going on with the coaching oh, yeah. carousel around the OUA. Few updates to uh, keep you posted on a uh, few jobs that have been filled and a few jobs that have been lost. Uh, we will, you know, fill you in on all those details. And uh, we'll, you know, with this being the end of the U Sports football season, we'll just give you a little update of uh, what we'll be doing in the weeks to come. Uh, any what type of content we're going to be putting forth. Uh, now that there are no more games to be commentating on, but there is a ton of football content out there. So many questions to be resolved, and uh, you know, there's always there's always speculation. That that game never gets old in my books, at least. But for today, it's all about the Vanier Cup, first and foremost. So let's jump right into the action. Final score in this game: Laval 34, Western 20. The game was in Laval, in Quebec City. And, you know, that home field advantage, I know some people are talking about that now, whether that's fair with, you know, it's going to be played in Laval's backyard in years to come. Perhaps it played into some effect, but right out of the gate with this game, Laval came out swinging. I don't think anyone was expecting that. And I've been so excited to talk with you about this, Eddie, because I know we kind of talked last week about how the, part of the, the word on the street with Western was that they were kind of expecting maybe a death by a thousand cuts from Laval they were going to attack him in the short passing game?
1: I think that's what they saw in the film against uh, St. FX and assumed that that was something that Laval was trying to work on to use against them to deploy against Western or perhaps it was just something Laval was showing on film to have Western scramble to try to deal with that and implement sort of schemes that were going to be more able to shut that down and then do something else, hit them with a counterpunch like double moves and deep passing all day.
0: Yeah, I mean, and right out the gate. And what was interesting, too, is, you know, I think that's a very, you know, that's a very good point on whether it was just sort of a, a misleading thing to put on tape, and we talked about that possibility, especially with the numbers that Alexis Cote put up in uh, against St. Effects the week prior with him not necessarily being their starting back. But when you listen to the post-game interviews, from you know Hugo Richard and and head coach Constantine they mentioned that when asked about that going for those big gains something that you know people who follow Valve follow U sports you don't necessarily see from la rouge et or they mentioned that that was something that they saw on tape from western that they thought they could exploit so a fun little game of cat and mouse going on here between you know two of the most storied coaches and two of the most storied programs In all of U sports football. Well, then that makes sense. I mean, you don't see a ton of sort of really tight
1: throws into, you know, into man coverage in the OUA. If you see someone get beat, it's usually by a few yards. And if you're hitting them in man coverage, that's great. But usually, if you just have sort of one or two yards of separation on someone, they're not really going to be targeting that receiver. So that's something Laval did. I mean, there were some blown coverages. There were some serious burns against Western DBs in this game. That happens. Great receivers. Hugo Richard played a great game. But the real the, the, the nuance of the game was he was hitting guys who were barely open. Yeah. And that's what Western did against Laval last year. And they did that not quite as well this year.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the game had a that a feel of a, like a pro game, kind of like watching a CFL game the way that the passing game was working for Laval. Um And, you know, to to Western's credit, they responded pretty well, you know, on that first drive after the touchdown, feeding Joseph the ball. A couple nice runs, as we would expect. That's, you know, you have the, you know, the top rusher or uh, one of the top rushers in the country, that Western O-line. And it was, I think, on the third play, though, we had the first pick of the game for Chris Merchant really really bad ball I mean you know he's under pressure and we expected there's going to be some issues because you know you got Matthew Betts rushing off the outside but he knew the pressure
1: was coming and the pressure did come in this game on this particular occasion he might have been able to stand in there and deliver the ball from the pocket but I think he was just sort of a little worried about what was going to be coming in a second or two and if your ball, if you can't get the ball out within three and a half seconds against Laval, you're you're probably screwed. Because we talk a lot about Matthew Betts, and uh, a decent amount about Vincent Desjardins, but it was really Vincent Desjardins who was like the terrorist in this game. I mean, Betts made a lot of great plays, but he also had three pretty costly penalties. Desjardins was a problem up the middle, but on this particular throw, Merchant may have been anticipating a rush that wasn't quite there yet. He rolls to the right. And he heaves up a very, like a poor decision ball yeah, while covered. being hit yeah. by, by a defensive back who closes on him in space, probably a little faster than he's used to, because that's a play Merchant's made before, um, rolling out and you know having a little bit of time, and then realizing someone's bearing down on him and getting that ball out just in time. He didn't get it out just in time on this one. So it floated up, and Maxime Lavallee picked it off, brought it back. I mean, gave Laval a really good field position, I think brought it back sort of to midfield
0: yeah and that, that led to their second score of the day on the field goal to get the game off to a 10 nothing lead for Laval so that was a really bad start yeah definitely not what you want and f- you know for Merchant you know uh, a tough game for, a tough game out there for him no doubt and not to just not not to say that th- this makes up for it, but an incredible just you know, we talked about this in the Saskatchewan game with some of those hits he took early on a pretty gutty performance. Cause as you mentioned, yeah, maybe sometimes he was feeling the pressure if it wasn't there quite yet, but he was taking hits and there was times, especially late in the game when Western was trying to, you know, the clock was slowly ticking away with the rest of their season. And there was this, I don't know. You could kind of feel the sense of urgency as you would expect from a team in that type of position. And I don't know, just merchant a ton of respect for just the physicality that he took on in this game but just didn't slow down. I mean, not always made the, didn't always make the best decisions, but you saw him effective. You saw him effective in the past game. At times you saw him running the ball effectively and just rolling with every hit he took.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't as though he played a bad game. He played a fine game. I think he, he had, there were some bad decisions. Sure. And there were some imperfectly thrown balls, but the, I mean, what's playing quarterback in Quebec city, if not those two things, Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, that's going to be a hard place to play your very best game. And, Again, it wasn't as though he didn't play well. He did. At times, there were things that were not great. So, but before that, I mean, let's let's talk about what happened after that pick. Western did get it together. Yeah. Uh their their next drive, I guess, maybe not as great. But after that, they had, I mean, they had that a really nice uh, scoring drive that that ended with a Cedric Joseph touchdown run, a short one. But uh, everyone was sort of getting in on it. You saw a nice running on the ground with CJ. You saw. I saw Brett Ellerman had a really nice catch. I mean, everyone was involved. You know, it was heavily involved on the day. It was Cole Majoros.
0: Yeah, Cole's someone who I, I definitely want to ask you about because you I th- he led the team in receptions on the day, and, you know, you saw Harry McMaster, a bit of a quieter day for him. Would you chalk that up to Laval maybe paying a m- bit more attention to McMaster or Western, tri- just as we talked about, you know, breaking tendencies that you've shown all year against this opponent, just trying to say, You probably think we're going to target McMaster, so let's make Majoros our go-to guy in the game.
1: Absolutely at times I do think they were spending a a decent amount of of their resources to deal with, with Harry McMaster. I saw when they had him isolated on occasion, you would see not quite true double coverage, but you would see man coverage and then you would see a linebacker sort of shoot out to get under any underneath stuff. So, you know, sort of double coverage. Right. Also, I think it's just a bit of a product of Colin Majoros playing very well in big games. I mean, if you remember last year's Vanier Cup, he had his best game of the season that year of that year in that game against Laval. And uh, he's he's a very good, you know, he's he's a very good receiver who again in this offense sometimes gets glossed over because it's a very good offense. They have a lot of options. But he's fast. He's quick and he's fast. So he's able to get open against man. He's able to find the soft spots in zone and get to those holes very quickly, those sort of soft spots in coverage. And he did that all day. He also had some – I mean, it was a really good game for him. There were a couple of
0: costly errors. Yeah. Uh, so he had that one fumble. I'm trying to remember when it was. He, um, had, he,
1: had, a, he had a drop. Oh, uh, yeah. A straight drop. Nah, okay, that was a short ball. It was later in the game, whatever. He had one – I don't know if you want to put it on more on Merchant or more on him – Oh, was, oh yeah, he was coming across. This was in the second half. Yeah, he was coming across on a deep crosser. The ball hit him. It was the ball placement was not great. No, right. He's zooming across the formation. Merchant puts it probably just a little bit too far above his head. Cole's not a super tall receiver, but all the same, puts it far enough above his head that he kind of has to slow down. He's kind of handcuffed by the ball, and he tips that up. And uh, Adam oclaire who had a very very nice game the Sam linebacker for Laval uh well it was just on a platter for him so he yeah. he got the pick and ran that back um and they ended up getting a field goal off of that if I if I remember correctly but one of those things and then yeah the fumble
0: yeah and you know you'd mentioned you know playing quarterback in Quebec late into the year some errant passes that's gonna happen and it's not all to say that Merchant was the only one throwing those balls, those bad balls, because, you know, Hugo Richard with a very, very nice game on the day. But late in that first half, there were times where he had some guys wide open, including one on a on a man who had was over the top of the defense. I'm forgetting which receiver it was, and just missed him, I think, two or three. And that could have really gotten the game out of hand early, because despite, you know, the game kind of had that feel where Laval was quick to respond with anything Western was doing on offense it was hard for Western it felt like they couldn't get the ball rolling like Laval was so quick to like respond with well yeah whether it was just a field goal or, or a nice drive there just wasn't sustained momentum I felt for Western in this one
1: no I agree and Laval gave Western some momentum with poorly timed or I mean just bad penalties uh, Maddie Betts as we mentioned earlier very special player. If you, if you can watch him, watch him because he's probably going to go to the NFL if I'm, if I'm a betting man.
0: Betting? Bet, bet. Yeah, we, we've played that. Part yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> going to the old
1: hits. Um, no. Anyways, Matty Betts is a very special player. Like, he's a great watch, but he does some things that will frustrate you and in just including hitting quarterbacks after they have the ball out of their hands, which the refs were kind of letting the kids play today but not on URs on quarterbacks.
0: Yeah, and obviously... Well, on one, perhaps, but not on all. <laughs> well, what I found funny was, you know, you had late in the game, you, you had there was a punt for Western, I think this is somewhere in the third, fourth quarter, not to jump ahead too much, where you had Betts in the backfield, seemingly having Legio just dead to rights, but, you know, Lego got the punt off, and, you know, the commentators, uh, McAuliffe on the game were kind of mentioning that it seemed strange that Betts didn't, Didn't block it, but you saw earlier on when he was getting those roughing the passer calls and he was kind of talking with the referees about, you know, what does he need to do to not get those penalties? Because, you know, once again, obviously in this modern day and age of football, it's tough sometimes for defenders when in the heat of the moment, you're going full speed, yada, yada, yada. But it looked like what they were trying to iterate iterate to him was that just you know if you're there and you bump into him that's fine but you just don't need to extend your arms on him and just give him that extra hit so I kind of had this impression when he got in the backfield on the punt that in his mind he was just thinking just don't extend your arms you don't need any more penalties because I think and once again at the end of the day it didn't really play that big a factor in the grand scheme of things but I think he had something like 35 penalty yards given up just solely by himself Um, so whether it was just you know, I, I haven't seen too too many games of him. I don't know if that's, you know, something that's the type of player that he's gonna get caught in that moment where he's at the quarterback and just a little bit too, you know, jacked up in the moment uh, he's, or maybe he's, he's the... gonna
1: find his way to the quarterback many times in a game and he's moving very fast and I don't know. It is it is hard as a defender when you're seeing a guy wind up to throw the ball and you know, who knows? Maybe he's just gonna pump it and bring it back down or yeah. maybe he's just trying to fake me out, you know, you gotta he had to kind of run through contact, and uh, he's, yeah. he's he is a special player, so you kind of you kind of expect him to occasionally take penalties, but more of the nature of jumping off sides, which he did do, uh, because he likes to jump the snap. Mm-hmm. And if you don't vary your cadence against him, he is going to make a lot of money jumping the snap, especially when they put him inside a defensive tackle, which they like to do on some passing downs. Sometimes loop and stunt him around the the, uh, the offensive line to sort of try to manipulate um, you know, the the <laughs> how quickly he'll get to the quarterback, how much attention he's drawing from an offensive line.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned that moving him inside a little bit and, you know, trying to anticipate the count or jump it, whatever you want to call it. I think it was when he was playing a sort of one tech nose type um, position where he got, where he actually got busted for jumping the count. But yeah, otherwise all game long, it just, it I, it did, I didn't really piece it together watching it that like, he just must be just, yeah, hearing that, and just going for it, cause it just looked like every single snap, he was just a second faster than everyone, defensively or offensively. Like he. Just... Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that's just sort of the nature of his get off. Yeah. Like, I, I, I do remember seeing him jump some snaps, but not all of them. I mean, he, you know, because that's just too risky. Yeah. Uh, but he is. he's like, he's truly the quickest defensive end you'll see, and also the most technically sound as a pass rusher in the run game. Sometimes he's a little hit or miss. Um, But I mean, he's, he's a very special player. Like he's, I I can't, I can't stress this enough. Like a three-time Metris winner. Yeah. A four-time first team all Canadian. Like
0: no one's ever done that. It's, you know, it's, it's remarkable. And, And, you know, just talking about this Laval defense in general, when you have a guy, as you already mentioned of the caliber of Desjardins inside, you don't necessarily need your defensive end to be the greatest run stopper. When, you know, you have a guy that can just, know, take care of um, you know, so much of that, you know, so much of the inside uh, game by the offensive line there. Well, and and Desjardins
1: is really more of a pass rusher than anything else. I mean, he's just so quick. He's he's kind of a bit like Mackie Broda, mm-hmm. who uh, we remember seeing from the University Saskatch- of Saskatchewan. Oh. Yeah, the yeah. defensive tackle Mackie Broda is playing a zero tech. Desjardins would be able to move around and play three tech, so he'd be able to get sometimes more, you know, one on one opportunities against offensive linemen boy, is he ever quick, and he's just got some devastating moves. And mm. really, again, on the day, if you're grading it out, yeah, if you're watching the film, Matty Betts is the guy who you're saying you're you're, you're salivating more over as a pro prospect. Not that Desjardins isn't a decent pro prospect. A little small for a D tackle, but you can make that work. But he had a better game. Like, I mean, he he made, I think in terms of just like sort of quarterback sacks hits pressures when you sort of tabulate that all up i think he probably had just as good a day as maddie bats but he also took no penalties as far as i could tell and i think he forced at least one so yeah. i thought he had a really brilliant day and you know frankly it's it's just it's a good front i mean the other the other two defensive linemen who start for them um number seven belthwa and the other d tackle i forget his name uh, they're just kind of guys i mean <laughs> And just guys on Laval, still you gotta be a good guy. <laughs> good. Still pretty good. You know what I mean? Just a guy on some middling program. Okay, that's an insult. But yeah. if you're just a guy on Laval, you're pretty solid. So
0: no and, harm in being a jag for the
1: Ujel or Yeah, exactly. So they were, uh, you know, maybe less impressive. But like those having two defensive linemen who are just like true nightmares. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be like putting Kenny Onyeka beside Macabroda. Well, and and it wouldn't even be like that. I mean, like we, Carlton had a great defensive yeah. line, but like it's Kenny Anieka is still a couple steps down from uh, from, Betts. from from Betts, yeah. and then Bowen is still a couple steps down from uh, from Dejardins. So, mm-hmm. like, what a terrifying defensive line.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, going back to going back to the issue of of penalties and just how the refs handled this game, real quick. You know, you talked about that they were calling predominantly any rough or late hits on the quarterbacks. But in the secondary, the Mm -hmm. bit different there, a little bit different there. And, you know, on the broadcast, they were taking note and it just seemed like they were letting the DBs, you know, be a little more handsy. And, you know, frankly, I don't, I don't think I had a problem with it. There were no overly egregious cases I saw.
1: I don't know if I hated any non-calls. I mean, like as a Western fan, I would have liked that call. But I don't know. Like I think I think Laval's DBs play a more physical brand of yeah. coverage. Chenavell,
0: you saw us like really at corner getting like into some of those receivers a couple of times. But yeah, nothing. No, no, just I, manhandling. It wasn't. It
1: wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't egregious.
0: I agree. Yeah. And that, yeah, there are
1: calls that as a receiver you want, yeah. and all the DBs in the room are saying no, it's not a penalty. Yeah. <laughs> As an offensive lineman, I know a thing or two about holding, and (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I would class any of those. There, I saw one or two. I think I saw one against Cole Majoros where uh, the DB. I think it would have been a Sam linebacker because Cole might have been playing W. Maybe it was a half. Either way, in the slot, kind of got a little bit of the hip to catch up, but it was so sly and subtle and not egregious. You know what I mean? Like, just there's a gamesmanship component to taking those. Penalties to doing well, well to not taking those penalties to holding to interrupting a pass in a way that is not going to be called. And I didn't think Laval crossed the line too substantially.
0: So no, and and in the grand scheme of things, I I don't know if that if the game the game
1: wasn't called the way that would have best served Western fair, yeah. But it was it was called I think fairly well.
0: Now now moving from calls made by officials to some of the calls by coaches. Now this play didn't necessarily factor in in the grand scheme of things, but there was a moment late in the first half, where with I think just under two minutes, probably maybe even less than one minute left, very late in the first half, Laval has the ball. I think they run on first down, pick up a couple yards, and Constantine calls the timeout. Now subsequently they don't get the first down, they punt it away, and it ends up leading to that you know last second field goal. Uh, for Leggio um, at the end of the half, set up by the Rochelleau, uh nice grab where he ended up going down with just a second left. But there was a certain that was a really nice grab, that and that was... was and that was really damn close to being a yeah. pick six. <laughs> that was
1: that was a very dangerous pass and also
0: very close to just being a nice grab, nice run, but the no no more time yeah. and just end of the half. But there's just I, you know I, I just loved you know Constantine in, the, in this moment just saying. Yeah, we're going to keep it going. Like, you know, we can pick up this first down because if, if that turned into six subs- and subsequently seven for Western, that's a much bigger turning point to end the half on in terms of, you know, stealing momentum, quieting that crowd down a little bit. So I, you know... Sorry, you said Constantine, do you mean Marshall? Well, So it was, it was the, the, the Laval drive with, you know, I think just around a minute left where they, they go, they run the ball on first down, you know, maybe four or five yards, call the time out, To uh, whatever they're trying to do, and end up preserving a little more time. So then, that's all. That's all I'm saying. Where if that turned into six and seven versus just the three, and it almost didn't even turn into the three. It's just those 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 plays those I don't know championship plays whatever you want to call it. Sure, that would have been those, a big big inflection point. That could have been a you know uh, I hope we don't get uh, you know fined for this a TSN turning point whatever you want to call it. <laughs> even though the game was on Sportsnet. Yeah, we'll no longer be uh, <laughs> operating this podcast. The season assist will have killed us. Yeah, um, and then in the you know second half, it's still just the whole game still had that feeling of Western would steal a little momentum, but. It just nothing really got going for you them. You start
1: off the second half with a two-and-out. Uh, and Anthony Eau Claire, you know, jumps a very wide-open backside gap on a sort of a slow-developing counter play, And then on the next series, after that two-and-out, Eau Claire has the interception. Ten points for Laval in the third quarter. The game was essentially put away. And, and, you know, it felt like Western had a plan in the first half, and it didn't really work. Mm. because a couple of unlucky things. Merchant maybe made a bad decision here or there. A couple of unlucky bounces with respect to, um, well, I mean, just plays not going quite their way. But then in the second half, it sort of just felt like Western was just reacting at that point. Mm. And I know we both commented, like, uh, we know they have an amazing offensive staff there. We can still criticize them when we think they've done something incorrectly. And there were some like second and 10 plays, in fact, quite a few, where Western's running like all stops at seven yards. Right, right. Second and 10. Like, uh, I I, I was agitating because I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I understand you expect your players to make plays when the ball's in their hand, and this is an easy way to get the ball in their hand. But, like, do you really want to put that on them every single second and 10? Yeah,
0: and, like, you know, once again, you know, playing devil's advocate in that regard, you know, maybe thinking that second and 10 laval is going to give you a lot of cushions so if you catch that seven you're gonna have the space but it's and maybe still, you
1: could make that mistake one time yeah you can't make that th- several times yeah
0: no that was mysterious another mysterious moment happened you know later as well on that merchant run where it got whistled down when he looked like he was he was ready to take that like 40 yards yeah and i and it was it was a western timeout was it not or i do not know i yeah i a weird play. I feel like it was not because
1: that was a great look for Western. They got exactly what they wanted.
0: Yeah, it it, it makes sense that well, I mean, it's it's weird because you know they ran essentially the same play right after, and it worked for them too. But, but they ran the exact same play the other way, <laughs> and he picked up yards, not a touchdown, unfortunately. And I don't they, think it That honestly felt a lot like me playing Madden right there. <laughs> oh my gosh, crap, that didn't work. Okay, let's run the same thing the other way. Yeah.
1: Um. And the thing yeah. is, is, of course, the first one did work. So Cla- classic, classic, classic call. Um, otherwise, though, I mean, just like in the second half, it just a lot of sh- a lot of short passing, a lot of stops a lot of, or hooks, whatever you want to call them. And it just, I don't know. Like, I, I just didn't see quite the same thing I was expecting out of Western in the second half as I did in the first. Yeah. Things, yeah, things didn't quite work in the first half. I don't know if that was a reason to – I mean, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I guess is the expression. I mean, it just it felt like if they had just kept plugging along, maybe they could get back in the game if their defense got some a few stops, one or two bounces here or there. Western had some bad bounces, and I just it it felt like they were kind of scrambling for a lot of the second
0: half. And I guess you know one of the great things with you know the sport is as that clock just ticks down, you know closer and closer to the end of the game, the pressure just keeps building, and you know sometimes you try and force some some things that aren't there i mean in this case they weren't really forced anything big per se but um you know sometimes that you know makes for some some poor decisions but yeah but
1: it was a lot of chipping away i mean when you look at the stats the, the the stats are pretty favorable or maybe the favor like they're they're good for western in terms of just 358 yards passing 150 yards rushing okay not the rushing efficiency western would want at only 5.56 yards per carry but not Bad. I mean, good <laughs> enough to win you a game. It's the turnovers that really ended up costing them. Yeah. Uh, but in the second half, especially later in the second half, it w- it felt kind of just again Dink and Dunky, like w- passing that would help the stat line, but not necessarily give you a substantial chance to actually get back
0: in that game. And and on that point too, like if you just looked at the box score for these two teams. You know, save for turnovers, perhaps. And, you know, even penalties. I kind of felt like Western was getting a, a few more penalties than they normally do. It was right around their season average with, I think, eight on the day. But just purely offensively, you looked at these numbers and you're like, not there, you know, m- maybe a little under their average, but this didn't look like a completely, you know, a, a, a terrible outing for Western. But, you know, if we, now let's take a quick look on the Laval side of things. And I know n- neither of us are all that well versed with, you know, the players on. Le or, we already talked about, you know, Richard having a very, very good day. And I know we were talking earlier that it, it I think it, it, surprised some people the type of output that he had. And w- w- I really liked how we stepped up in this game because there was definitely, you know, having the U Sports banquet and the awards the week leading up to it. You know, there was a lot of people that thought that, you know, Richard getting the second team All-Canadian. I know we'll get into All-Canadians a little bit more uh later in the program over you know Trey Ford was a, a misstep and so I you know I just thought you know you compound Laval losing to Western last year you you know take into account you know some people may be saying he didn't deserve the all canadian award all these things I just I thought it made for just a great setup for him to have the type of game that he ended up having yeah and he had a really great game i
1: mean this is the best game i've ever seen him play and granted i've only seen him play in a few games but like, he was hitting everything. And he was hitting stuff in tight coverage. And you know, he played exactly the game he needed to play for Laval to win because, boy, like, ineffectual last year against Western and in, uh, in the Vanier. So, I don't, like, I don't know if, if this was an unusual game for him in terms of the ways that they attacked a defense. You couldn't tell because he was just putting the ball exactly where it needed to be most of the time.
0: And, you know, the player on the other side of those balls a lot of times were making brilliant catches I mean Gagnon Rousseau had a nice day as well and he had that one just beautiful toe tap catch right on the sideline as well you know some deadly we obviously our eyes are you know traditionally drawn to the defensive side of the ball for Laval but some really really you know solid weapons across the board for them in this game obviously all season for um for everyone Laval.
1: everyone did their job I mean yeah. Breton Robert had a really nice day with seven catches for 154 yards. Everyone did their job. Everyone, it just looked like everyone was running pretty clean routes, and I think generally speaking, Laval's offensive line held up extremely well in protection against Western's front. Yeah, there may be some criticism to be levied there in terms of just Western's DBs. Yeah, they didn't play their best game. What? Yeah, I mean they were being dealt more deep passing with a quarterback more able to just stand in the pocket and
0: throw it like a statue than they have at all this season. But, I mean, it, there's a there's a tough decision to be made in all that, too, that I can imagine, you know, the defensive minds for Western were having to deal with where when you start off with, you know, your defensive backs getting beat a few times, they weren't getting pressure with just, you know, four-man rushers all that well. But now if you want to bring in extra bodies, have a couple of guys blitzing, trying to mix things up, you know, given how your DBs have played and earlier early on in the game, are you now putting them in a position to be exposed even further and it's just it's tough where i just felt like what you know western defensively just said we have to just stay in base at this point and i think that hurt them ultimately because yeah it let it allow richard to have the type of game that well that he had
1: yeah yeah i agree i agree there was there was no easy opportunity there to uh to, to have a quick you know oh this is the fix there was no obvious fix yeah you don't yeah exactly do you really want to put your guys in like zero or cover one and send the house i mean i it's sometimes, I mean, if you can catch them off guard, if you're yeah. really timing up your blitz as well, maybe if you sort of can dictate with down and distance. But Western really couldn't dictate the down and distance because, yeah, okay, Laval didn't have an amazing day on the ground running, but they did run fairly efficiently with uh, with Cote. I mean, and then Hugo Richard obviously being opportunistic and picking up some yards himself. So. I guess, you know, when you can stand in the pocket, you can do good things, and that's exactly what he was able to do.
0: Yeah, and, and speaking of Richard's ability to uh, move the ball with his feet as well, there's one play in the first half where you know, he picked up maybe 10, 15 yards, nice run straight up the middle, and he did a weird kind of head-first kind of slide, and there was, a, you know, Valente, you know, gave him a little lick towards the end, and, and no flags were called, and he saw the two of them really get in each other's face, and, and I loved it, and, you know, McAuliffe on the broadcast kind of made the point that I think, you know, that you know as a quarterback if you do a traditional feet first slide and a guy kind of gets you then yeah you'll probably get the flag for that but if you're kind of going shoulders first like you're and you you're looking to initiate contact at that point I don't I don't think it's fair to complain you know I wh- the
1: NFL rule I think is that you can't really hit a quarterback either way at this point but but yeah absolutely I mean there's a reason that that's sort of a new addition of an amendment to that rule because it is so hard not to Hit someone when they're just they're fighting to yeah. gain extra yards, right? <laughs> if they've already gained the first down, that's that's really the big thing. If you've already gained the first down, you don't and you're at midfield, say for instance, you don't you don't need to crush them to stop their forward progress. But again, that's just not the logic of, fo- of football, right? Like that's not how we operate as football players in it's the not, moment. Yeah, it's just... it's not well, you know, the extra marginal half yards not very important. <laughs> so I'm not gonna hit them hard because that's what's in the best interest of the game. That's yeah. not how a DB is thinking.
0: Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it really showed and for, you know, RSCQ followers and, you know, fans of, uh, Laval, this probably doesn't come as a surprise, but it definitely, it caught me, uh, it, or I took note of it. And I, I loved really the, 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 fire and the passion Richard has, you know, I, I know I made this joke with you before he kind of has that, like, you know, Michael Jordan punching Steve Kerr in the face, like a teammate of his type of energy where I'm like, or I'm just thinking like, yeah, this is the type of guy that like, if you're playing on his team, could probably be absolutely infuriating at times but by the same token that type of fire can also be good for a team to get you going
1: yeah i mean like the best athletes are are like pathologically
0: competitive like it's it's
1: not even healthy
0: you know what (laughs) i mean like
1: like aaron Rodgers. like we aaron Rodgers is one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play in my opinion i think he's the goat personally i just and i love watching him but like Everything I hear about him, is like he sounds like, like an
0: awful person. Well, yeah. No, I
1: mean, maybe not that, but
0: just <laughs> like – His family doesn't get along with him from what uh, I well, hear. Well,
1: yeah, you know, there's two sides to every story sure. perhaps. But, like, if you're one of those guys who you have to win in everything, that's yeah. probably annoying. But on game day, you, that's who you want to have yeah, the Yeah, the, the Kobe Bryants game. of the world. Exactly. exactly. Take every shot. Yeah. And, yeah, I know. Hugo really shot his shot, his shot this game. It's the last game he's ever going to play for Laval. Yeah. Probably the last game he's ever going to play, period. I mean, good player, but not, not exactly – CFL quarterback material, yep. in my opinion. <laughs> uh, hot take. <laughs> and, uh, and he played just like it. He played like he was playing in front of his home crowd, the last game he'd ever play. And l- like he's a Laval quarterback who's only won one Vanier Cup at that point, right? Which, in the grand scheme for Laval, that would be, that'd be a pretty disappointing tenure. I mean, for a very good quarterback, right? Am I, I'm correcting that, right? He's only won I, one.
0: Yeah, I think it was his first year there, too. I think yeah, I don't know. Well, well, so you have you have
1: the Western win, you have the Montreal win. And then a Laval win somewhere in there.
0: I guess it would have been the would So you've had a
1: McMaster win in that duration? No.
0: Mac would have been the 2012 year, Laval would have been 2013. He was a he was a rookie in 13. And so I think that's the one he on, on the second when they played the Mac in the, you know, the revenge game, which, if for them, it's funny to think that, like, in the last six, seven years, this is the second time where they've now taken revenge on a team that they lost in the vanity Cup a year prior, beating them in the vanity Cup the year after, of course, McMaster in the first go around 2012, 2013, I believe, or maybe 2011, 2012, and then now 2017, 2018 against Western. Um, and as you check that, and another thing that I thought you know talk about some of the you know bulletin board material for Laval going into this game one thing they had made known on the broadcast was that going into this game Western's win streak was 23 in a row and the all-time U Sports record is was currently and is still held by none other than of course Laval with 25 so i don't think it would have surprised anyone that had Western won this game Then gone into the first week of their OUA schedule next year. I don't care who it is you put up them against. They probably would have tied and then broken the record if they were able to get back in, get into the 2019 season with that win streak uh, still intact. Um, So I mean, most likely,
1: yeah. So uh, upon just a quick Google search, so yeah, Laval won this year, Western last year, Laval the year before against Calgary. UBC the year before that, in Montreal. Oh yeah, the UBC year, right, right, right. Um, was, I don't know why I thought. And then Montreal won in 2014. So Hugo Richard's uh, first year was in 2013. That was also a Laval win against Calgary. Uh, but I think, you know, he was, he was sort of a, a hanger on at that point more than a. Uh, <laughs> he was the rookie of the year. He was a good player, but yeah. that that was I think a classic, run for 300 yards on them kind of game. Mm-hmm. I remember actually pretty well. They ran all over Calgary. And yeah, so I Okay, so three wins for him, that's pretty special. Yeah. That that's amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What whether Laval whether you play for Laval or otherwise. And now um one point that I I think is worth talking about and we mentioned this last week after the semifinal games where Laval had their sixty to three route of Sane Effects and got to rest players and Western had, you know, while it turned out to be on the scoreboard, um, you know, a, a solid win for them, a much more, you know, physically, uh, you know, physically challenging game when they had to take out Saskatchewan. So I'm wondering now, having watched this game, seeing how it played out, seeing how physical this game was, is this just more, you know, fuel to the fire of, these unfair semifinal games and that one team's essentially getting a bye in playing the AUS is making for an unfair advantage in this final game. Yes. And it sounds like sour grapes
1: because it wasn't as though I was complaining about it last year. Not that I had a show a platform to complain <laughs> about it on, but yes, it is. It is unfair when you have, you know, three teams making it to the quarterfinals and one of those teams or three teams make it to the quarterfinals who are all pretty good mm-hmm. and on any given Sunday could beat one another. Yeah. And one team that maybe on a given Sunday 10 years ago had a chance or a long time ago. We'll just say that. So it, giving one team essentially a bye, yes. Yes, it is. it is. It is brutal, especially when you don't have to travel to go see them. True. Yeah. And then you don't have to travel for the game the next week. That is as perfect a road. You, know, you you couldn't pave it any nicer if mm-hmm. you had a road grader, uh, which Laval has five of on their <laughs> offensive line. And three all-Canadians. Unplanned, I promise. And, yeah, that, that was a really, really easy route to the Vanier Cup for Laval. Yeah. Now, that being said, they do a good job hosting it. Yeah. They probably defray the cost to use sports a little bit. I don't know why U Sports would change it. I mean, they're they're fairly well guaranteed a decent attendance. I think they had twelve thousand. That was the official attendance, and I don't know if that's necessarily better than when it was in Hamilton, but it sure looks better because that's sort of venue appropriate in terms yeah. of in terms of
0: the size. And I think that that's a very important point that I don't think should be looked over. You know, I I, I think my my dad was mentioning the Toronto Sun did a little piece and talking about it and whether it's fair that. Laval gets to host so many of these games, but it, it can't be, you know, misstated the, in the importance of in, in a sport where the, I think to quote you from earlier from an earlier episode where the, the media coverage doesn't necessarily represent all the talent that's there, there is just it's, it's just blatantly more valuable in some regards to have this game. Yeah, in Laval, with a good looking product like that was, you know, there was times where I I almost in some of the slowness in the second half in the third quarter and things kind of hunkered down and looked like it was going to just be undoubtedly a a Laval win where I was just still so engaged. It just, it was a great product to watch. And I think you lose so much that if, you know, yeah, maybe it's not, maybe it wasn't as, maybe it's, you know, roughly the same amount of people, but it's certainly louder. You could hear it on the broadcast. I'm certain the Western players heard it on the field. And to me that in, you a, in a, in a sport that we're trying to, you know, raise to the deserved you know, platform of the talent that goes out on the field. I think that that's, I think that's, you know, shouldn't be uh, t- taken for granted.
1: No. And the professionalness of the broadcast also is another thing that was, that was great. And, you know, wonderful. It's, it's awesome to have Tim McAuliffe doing that, you know, as a, a bit of a tribute to his late brother right and uh and also just you know for the love of of really of canada of canadiana of something important to us culturally i mean how important sort of a matter of opinion but you know it's canadian football and it's it's nice to see a packed house even if it's a small one it's nice to see people who actually really know what they're doing on the on the broadcast even if it's not you know maybe a great NCAA broadcast you know what i mean it's it, it, it was it was awesome so I don't, you know, I don't think it's fair that Laval hosts
0: it, but it might end up being the best thing. And I think, yeah, I, th- I think that's more towards my point. There probably is an advantage for them, no doubt. In the grand scheme of things, it might be just Im- more important for the sake of yeah the the whole game and yeah. the product.
1: See, you know, I really loved it when they when they coupled it with the Grey Cup. Yeah, and I think sort of the more Canadian football you could pack together. I mean. You know, you have the, all the Offsa Bowl games going on right now yeah, in, out in Ottawa, Ottawa yeah. and you know you have all the coaches there. Like, why not have just one big event that's oh, Grey God, Cup, OFSA, be- U Sports Championship, Vanier Cup? Like, have it all at once.
0: And you know, what, everyone's
1: you- going to be there anyways. Yeah,
0: and you know what? You buy a ticket to the Grey Cup, that gets you into the Vanier Cup, gets you into all those things. Like, wh- whatever you got to do, just to you know, because yeah, l- let's say it's get in ha- people out. Because yeah, let's say it's in Hamilton where we've seen maybe they don't draw that many to the Vanier Cup do yeah whatever it takes football is
1: supposed to be a party it's supposed to be a celebration it's supposed to be thousands and thousands of people coming together in terms of spectators to get slightly drunk and watch people (laughs) smash their bodies into other people and to cheer crazily for their teams so i I, you know any way that you can get more people out and more beer flowing at games in my opinion (laughs) that's always a recipe for a better product (laughs)
0: entertainment wise yeah I, i no i i completely agree um and you know, like I said, despite at times not being the the most competitive games in 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 just instances, it was still a a, a joy to watch and uh, I can't wait till next year because yeah, 100
1: uh, percent you know I have I have criticisms I mean I, you know I also like Cedric Joseph didn't get any touches in the second half like that mm. that to me was wild, but you know Cedric is or maybe he had one reception in the second half, I don't know, but he didn't have any running touches in the second half. I have gripes. That's one of them. I, there are plenty. But at the same time, an amazing team, played an amazing team, and lost. Mm. Uh, can't really fault the players. Like, it's just, yeah, maybe people didn't play their absolute best game. That happens. It happens when you play against a great team. that You might not play your best game. It's hard to play your best game against the best players in yeah. the country. And Laval has a lot of those. So if only we could see it happen more often I, uh. I, I imagine imagine if there was some way to get the best teams to play each other more than once in a season
0: i know i know i, I know it, it just it it takes just, a lot of brain power it takes it, a lot of brain power and, i mean uh, takes a lot of it takes money is, I a
1: solution just eludes the brightest thinkers we have <laughs> on this side.
0: you know just on you know on that note and i think you mentioned some of the proposed solutions whether it's the 8 or six team playoffs and i believe I, I think I, I saw something. Either, one of those two options got vetoed um, by the you know, coaching um, association, whatever it is, the representatives from each conference. And they, I forget if it was the six or the eight, but they said, we didn't want it. One is still on the table possible to happen in the future. But you know, I was thinking about it because there was people on Twitter posting, well, if we had a, a more sophisticated playoff bracket, here's what the matchups would have been. And I think, I don't know if there is some type of, for lack of a, a better word or a more, you know, a proper word for this a type of revenue sharing amongst teams, just because, you know, on that list, you might in one instance have Saskatchewan traveling out east, but then all of a sudden you only have, say, a team from Ottawa going to Quebec. But then one year it might be Quebec going out to BC, all those different things. I feel like there'd have to be some way where maybe teams could like just pull in money to create a safety net where it's like, you might be having to travel way the heck out there. You might be having to travel to your next door, you know, province, whatever it might be. I think that would somehow have to sure, be sure. Those costs would have to be split. Yeah, sure. um, but you know, that's all up in the air for uh, the future of U Sports and you know what's going to happen in the future. And uh, n- like I said, next year's Vanier Cup, I'm a- I'm already super psyched for because Eddie, this was the 54th. Yeah. So you know what that makes next year? We're gonna be have to be there. <laughs> what? At the 55. Oh, baby. The show's not over. Um, but, I think <laughs> <laughs> but it should be. We I mean, should just drop the mic right there. Um, But I think that does a pretty adequate job of wrapping up the Vanier Cup for this I year. sure hope it does because that's all we have. <laughs> um, So, yeah, I guess on that note, let's move on. Sure. So, Eddie, I guess now would be a good time to do a run-through of the All-Canadian list. Feels like
1: about that time. Yeah. You want to give us a list? Yeah. So, working down uh, from the first-team offense – uh, Laval had three offensive linemen, center guard and tackle, those being Samuel Lefebvre, Samuel Thomasin, and Ketel Asse. Not really surprising that Laval gets solid representation on their offensive line. They're, they're all really good players. They're not maybe the height that we associate with Laval offensive lines. So, I mean, just if I had to pick one of those guys, I would have said definitely their center, but, you know, Catel S.A. a great prospect. I prefer Jesse Gibbon. And my preference, uh, you know, would have been at guard probably for Matlin Riley out of Saskatchewan over Thomas Sant. Like he's he's good. He's really big. He's strong. He's not like he's not quick. He's I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I love the picks. I mean, I like Dave Brown, Western guard. Yeah, I bet you do. I like I like him
0: at guard. What are the odds um, you'd have two offensive linemen on the first team, uh, on the first team all Canadian, both from Laval, both first named Samuel. Probably, like, one in
1: five. It's, like, a very common French first name, and Laval often has multiple guys. So, like, really not that. I, I was looking at the same thing. Like, hmm, spelled exactly the same way. Yeah, they're both Samuels, you know? Like, what can you say? Laval has a lot. You know, they're, they're just going to you know, have, like, Samuels, Pierres, you know, Cattel. That's a unique name. You, don't you see go. that every day. And then uh, Logan Bandy from Calgary, also a tackle. He's a second-year guy. That's that's kind of interesting. A second-year offensive lineman as an All-Canadian.
0: Definitely something to keep your eyes open for in the future.
1: Yeah, we knew they had good offensive lines out west. And that of, you know, I, again,
0: like one of those
1: two guys, in my opinion, I would have put Jesse Gibbon there. But I don't watch enough Can West or enough RCQ to really have a complete opinion. I watched a few games leading up to the Western game of Laval. And, you know, actually – I. I, honestly, I like Montreal's right tackle maybe the most of anyone I saw in the film there. Oh, okay. Yeah, really nice, uh, nice feet. I think he's number sixty-six. He's a, he's a player, anyways. And I like their left guard too. He's a first-year guy, so someone to watch for the future. But just those are just kind of random notes. <laughs> uh, the receivers you could have guessed two of them: yep. uh, Tyler Trenauksi and Curly Giddens Jr. Yes, sir. Yeah, no surprises there. I mean, again, like. Tyler Tarnowski had the best season I've ever seen of a receiver, and then we just know Curly Giddens. You know, he 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 can sleepwalk his way to almost a thousand yards receiving <laughs> in a season. Yeah, uh, and and he sort of did in a in an offense that was, you know, a little bit of sleep at the wheel sometimes. And then the other receivers, uh, Travell Pinto out
0: of UBC. You know it says UBC, but all I see here is MT Dub. Yeah, that is all you would see. <laughs> and Travel Pinto, yeah, I never actually played with him. Did you? Uh, no, uh, no, I don't think so.
1: No. I just now he would be en- enough <laughs> younger than us. No. <laughs> we are old men. He's in fourth year, but I can't do math. So let's not even go down this. Yeah, rabbit let's. Hole. Uh, but we are older than him by at least <laughs> a few years. And then you have uh, uh, Kayon Julian Grant. Okay. Yeah. Good receiver out of Santa Fex. we knew he was I mean he was there. Heck cried right nominee. So obviously they thought pretty highly of him in the conference. And a player, you know, you would have heard about, a good player. Two running backs, Cedric Joseph out of Western and Tyler Chow out of Saskatchewan that's oh. what's that look what's that look saying oh no that look is this, pure- is, this is an audio an yeah. audio platform
0: the, the look i gave was of just thinking of cedric joseph and tyler chow just alternating getting carries in okay. a backfield for some you know this this all-star team we have here and just salivating on i got you you're,
1: you're you're playing this out well what about cedric joseph and alex taylor would that be a good one too
0: yeah, but I've seen it. I've seen it already. Yeah, I'm you've not, seen it. I yeah, want to switch right. it up. Fair enough. Fair nope. enough. You're, you're
1: playing yeah. fantasy football. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like when
0: you do the fantasy draft, when you do Dynasty mode back yeah. in the day playing oh, Madden did, or whatever. You're <laughs> telling me I did that all the time. <laughs> that was everything I did. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I had hundreds of teams. And you always put your team drafting first.
1: <laughs> no, actually not always. Not always. I liked a bit of a challenge. <laughs> oh, okay. My, my strategy was pretty simple. It was draft all the good young players who still have low ratings who I think will develop and play for five years down the road. That was your game? That was me. I just picked the best
0: players. Yeah. See, and then I'd play were, for one year, and then I'd start you over thinking. again. See, I knew, I knew how they'd progress. I did the long
1: game. I knew how they'd progress. So in year one, yeah, my team was like all 78s. And by year three, they were all like 95s.
0: I don't um, have that kind of patience.
1: Yeah, anyway, so uh, we digress. <laughs> Pretty substantially. So the head Crichton and the first team all-Canadian quarterback was Adam Sinagra, if you hadn't heard. Not a selection you can hate. I mean, obviously, he's a guy who for the most passing yards in, was it U sports history or was it Can West history? I mean, like he had a pretty amazing year. He kind of, it, it felt like he was throwing for 400 yards every single game. And he was, you know, he had great receivers and he had a good offensive line for sure. But he was obviously outstanding and you can't take anything away from him. Uh, you know, and <laughs> Calgary's had a few heck right winners now. I mean, well, or they've, they've won a few heck right in the last few years. Because of one other winner, specifically, Andrew Buckley, Mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, just retired from the CFL to pursue his M.D. Because. Oh, good for him. Because. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Good for him, indeed. And. uh, I mean, yeah, Adam, you can't say he's undeserving, but you can make an argument for someone else. And. It appears no one did make that argument for that other person. Does well, that other person's name rhyme with perhaps? Per, per chance? It does, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. it does. And the name is Trey Ford, if you couldn't pick it up from that horrendous Sounds Like segment. Thank you, thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, So Adam Sinegler wins? Yeah, fine. I mean, the other uh, nominees were Trey Ford, Hugo Richard, and Keon Julian Grant. Of those guys who won the most games in the regular season. Well, that would have been a tie between Hugo Richard and,
0: and uh, Adam Sinagra. Sinagra. Yeah. I mean, okay. you, you see it in, in other sports leagues as well, in professional ranks as well, where it's like, can your most valuable player be on a team that's not top, you know, one, two, whatever it may be. Like, how, It's that balance between just outrageously just incredible stats and team success. And I guess in this case, you know, obviously Sinagra has both. You might say that there was a there was, you know, some things that Ford did that were more impressive, but when you couple that with the eight 0 season and I I have a feeling and I don't know
1: because I don't I haven't asked anyone in the room and even if I had, they probably wouldn't tell me. <laughs> but there's a bit of a, a bias towards, well He's a fifth-year guy. This is his mm-hmm. last year. He had a great season. Let's send him off. Trey Ford will have another chance next year and the year after and maybe even the year after that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't like that. No. Give the best player the award. In my opinion, that was Trey Ford. Give him the award. Yeah. You know? So that guy had a great year. He's going to be in record books. You don't need to give him the heck cried right to make him feel better. You know, he had a great year. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. A, and again, it's yeah. not a shot at him. Yeah, He's yeah. great. It's not his fault that, that Trey Ford is the most ridiculous football player in the country, the most ridiculous football player I've ever seen, like He's, in Canada. Yeah. He's ridiculous. What do you mean? Look at him. He's a freak.
0: Trey Ford doing
1: Trey Ford things. Yeah. So uh, he does trade Ford things. I didn't see Adam Sinagra do Trey Ford things. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, I, mean, I saw a- I saw Trey Ford do Adam Sinagra things. Ooh. I didn't see the reverse. Okay,
0: okay. No, nah,
1: again, Adam Sinagra's is great. Yeah, Trey Ford deserved this, and if he doesn't win it next year, I will protest. Uh, <laughs> and then, <and>, like, <gasps> and I still want Merchant to get OUA MVP because he is the best quarterback on the best team, and he plays
0: great football. What would have been incredible to see would have been, would have been. Ford first team OUA, Merchant somehow get MVP, and then Ford not get first or second team All-Canadian, but then still somehow secure the heck, just in some weird mishmash of awards and whatever, but... Yeah, you're, you're really pulling a lot of threads there. To <laughs> make that you're sort of like,
1: the conspiracy theorists, and they're like, well, how do we make this work? Yeah, anyways. <laughs> it is what it is. I, I almost could see that happening. You know, and that's one of those things, so... Can't be too upset, though, with Adam Snagger winning the award in the grand scheme because he did play a great year. He did put up gaudy numbers. He did go 8-0. He is uh,
0: – I think, yeah, he's a fifth-year guy, right? Uh, I think they have him in – I think he's maybe a fourth-year guy. But, uh, I mean, either way, it – either either one you go with. I mean, like you said, if it, if it were Trey Ford, you would have had, you know, the – you know, out west, the big mm. Sinagra fans yeah, guy. supporting, you know, his claim for it. it. There, this to me ultimately is a good thing that we're having this conversation because this is a testament to the num- the amount of just talent throughout the league um, that we had this year. Once again, another reason that we just need to keep, you know, pumping up uh, the tires of, of all the talent in this league because it's just it's, it's a remarkable product that that uh, we have here. Um, Playing right now in U Sports. uh. Sure,
1: sure. I mean, yeah, I would have preferred to go to Trey Ford, but (laughs) but yeah, I mean, we we will talk about Trey Ford even though it didn't go to him. Uh, On defense, moving along, the two D tackles were um, Evan Macabroda from Saskatchewan, who we mentioned, and Vincent Desjardins from Laval, who we also mentioned. Like no surprises there. They were the two best D tackles in the country. I don't think it was close. I, I mean, there were other good D tackles, for sure. But, like, Trayvon James and uh, Thomas Grant from Acadia, like, I hadn't heard of him. I, again, I don't follow the AUS closely. It's not because I hate the AUS, it's just because it, it, they are somewhat irrelevant in the grand scheme of things in the national scene uh, in terms of winning a Vanier Cup. So I wasn't, you know, going to grind out the film of them. Yeah. Their best representative losing to Laval by 70.
0: And, you know, it... Kind of what we were talking about last week as well. How much does the quality of a opponent you're playing on a weekly basis factor in? Yeah. Uh, I. Yeah. I mean, we
1: don't have to delve into that. No, the long and the short of it was the two D tackles, Mac Ibrota and Desjardins were incredible. Nasty. Very, very dynamic pass rusher D tackles. Not really the run stuffer type. Not that they couldn't do that to some degree, but just those are pass rushers. I wouldn't be surprised to see both of them in the CFL next year. I guess, yeah. both in fourth year, so they could, they could, they could be back. They could be gone. Undersized pass rushing defensive tackles. There's actually a place for those guys in the CFL for sure, because again, it's a pass rushing league. If you have that kind of ability and can also play on specials, which they might be fast enough to, then they have a good chance. The two DNs, uh, Matty Betts was number one, uh, in. in the most obvious stroke of, like, yeah, duh, yeah, ever. I mean, he's the best defensive lineman I've ever seen in Canada. Honestly, I don't know if I saw anyone better when I was down in the states at Boston College, like specifically at Boston College. We had some, some decent guys, but
0: you, you played against a pretty good guy linebacker. When yeah, you yeah, there. yeah. The <laughs> linebacker
1: was Luke Keekley. He was pretty good, but at defensive end, <laughs> yeah. at defensive end specifically, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. this guy's incredible. You know, he turned down a D one offer to, like to Purdue. Out of CJAP to oh, go wow. to Laval, so like I expect to see him in the NFL. It's NFL or bust for him. I I'm fairly certain he'll make at least a roster as a special teamer to start because he is that quick, he's that fast. Like I I expect him to go to the combine and run like a four six. Okay, so was, I mean I could be wrong. Yeah. Like he maybe he's quicker than he is long fast because right, we right, just right. we don't get a chance to see. But like he is crazy quick. Mm-hmm. The other defensive end. Who uh, was the first team Canadian, Kenny Anyeka? He was the nominee for best down defensive lineman
0: out of Ontario. Yeah. It's and, almost a shame with Anyeka to think that, you know, being nominated out of the OUA alone. Uh, it's great. It's, it, that's great. It's great. Obviously, you're in his career, you're not. Yeah. yeah.
1: Your timing sucks, it's, Kenny. Your timing, your timing sucks. Like just, for just, Kenny. just, just come a year earlier, stay a year later, whatever yeah. it is. Don't, don't have your timing yeah. coincide with Matty Bats. But Kenny Anaya is outstanding.
0: So obviously, I think his at, timing
1: might suck in this respect, but yeah. it doesn't suck in terms of timing. His jump off the line and his hand strikes and
0: stuff because yeah. those are great. I, I think having you know, obviously, we still have the whole, all the uh, other players to go through. Out of all the you know units that you can put together from combining the best players across the country. That first team defensive line, I think, just gets me hyped up more than anything else. It's just No no
1: qualms there. Yeah, if you if incredible. you unleash that <laughs> defensive line on an, any offense, it would just be the most disgusting carnage. <laughs> like oh you God. you wouldn't know whether to shit or go blind as an offensive lineman. That's just so devastating. <laughs> yeah. So I mean individually they're devastating and then collectively, holy hell. Yeah. <laughs> the linebackers are, are you know, no less devastating. Frazier Sopek, who also won the President's Trophy as the best defensive player, stand-up defensive player in the country, is one of the linebackers. And here, I noticed this year, they're not distinguishing between Sam linebacker and Mike and Will. It's just all, they're all listed as LB. So that's kind of nice. I mean, give the best three guys a chance. And really, I mean, just you want to see just the best 12 on any given defense with some semblance of distribution you know yeah. like, like if there were if if there was a natural cutoff at three defensive linemen I'd be like okay fine just put three I mean you know what in this case there were four great ones and a linebacker I think that's that's the case also uh three great ones at the linebacker position so Frazier sopic you know again we, we talked about it all year not gaudy statistically like eight, even with 38 tackles on the year 31 solos two and a half for a locks, one sack an interception those are not
0: big numbers. Those are like what? Yeah, nothing we, numbers. You know, I think, and also doesn't matter. And also the the way you described with Machia Brodo and Dejardin not necessarily being you know traditionally the most big defensive lineman, as well as a guy like Sopic and you know another OUA guy who, making this list on the second team, Luke Coral, showing that just the way that football is evolving right now, just being able to move sideline to sideline, being a great tackler and just speed, that just. That that, cu- that could just be the recipe these days for success. I mean, we're obviously seeing it in the form of a lot of these players. Well, Frazier's a
1: little different because he's just got the best football IQ in the country. Like, he's got the best fo- – I, I can say that very confidently. He has the best football IQ of any defender in the country. That's what won him the award. That's so strange because he went to St. Andrews. I know. Yeah. Uh, how, <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah. Uh, but, no, uh, Frazier Fraser is – he's fast enough. Yeah. He's big enough. He's not elite in any of those traits. He's he's pretty quick. Like he is pretty fast. But it's just his ability to read stuff, right? Like you don't need to run a four six if you're You're half a second ahead of everybody else in terms of recognition. Mm -hmm. You know, you can run a four eight and still be three tenths of a second there before anyone else. So that's that's how he made his money. If he has a good off season, I expect I mean, I expect him to be gone in the C F L next year. I expect him to be a first at worst high second round pick. Because, uh, again, like, just physically you look at him and you think he's not CFL-ready body-wise. But he might be able to get there. And, again, great football IQ. So it doesn't really matter. The other two linebackers, um, we have uh, Brian herley Mana, linebacker out of Montreal. I, I, I was watching the Laval film against Montreal, and he's a guy who just jumps off the tape. He's so quick. He's so mobile. He gets out in coverage. Like, he's so deep in coverage. Just like a perfect Tampa 2 kind of linebacker where you can have him sort of close to the line of scrimmage and then, nope, you want him in, you know, deep thirds, you can do that too. So he's he's a very um, exciting player to watch. And actually, one, I, I was a part of the effort to recruit to Western. We were unsuccessful, uh, evidently. But <laughs> great great player and a lot of fun to watch. And then uh, Ben Hladek out of UBC, second-year linebacker. Uh, he was... Um, I think he was the defensive nominee for the President's Trophy as well. Oh, wow. For that conference, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just double-check on mm-hmm. that really quickly. And indeed, I'm correct. He was. And uh, I, I didn't actually get a chance to watch him a ton, but I've heard good things. I've heard he's, a, again, another really smart football IQ guy. Helps to have a good football IQ when you're a linebacker. Yeah. Because you've got to make a lot of those decisions about where you're going to go very quickly before big guys come and try to knock your head off. So there's some some great insight there. (laughs) Uh, The defensive backs, uh, Stavros Katsantanis out of UBC, safety, fourth-year guy. He's been an All-Canadian before, and if he sticks around, will again, but he'll probably be off to the CFL. He's a really nice player for them. Marc-Antoine Decoy, I think I'm saying that right, out of Montreal. I'll give it a thumbs up. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's plausible. Third-year guy, don't know anything about him. Bet he's pretty good. It seems like he would be. Analysis. <laughs> 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 and uh, Will Amoa out of Laurier, you know, someone who, again, kind of flew under our radar a little bit in the OUA. Just, I mean, he had a lot of picks and we knew he was good, but just we just assumed that it, they were going to kind of go with the blue blood approach with, you know, Malcolm Thompson and Scott Hutter would be first teamers. Mm-hmm. Will Amoa got it and, and he had obviously, you know, a very productive year with interceptions. I want to say he led the conference.
0: Well, I mean, I think we admitted this going through the OUA All Stars that in which that half was half is half right? is a more nuanced it's a, it's a position. Tricky, yeah. it is. It is right because there's so many different things.
1: Corner you can kind of tell, but halves, yeah, they have to put a lot. They yeah. have to wear a lot of hats, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, they can do a very good job and be very quiet or They can do a great job being, you know, making so a lot distru- of noise, yeah, being disruptive. So, yeah. kind of one of those one of those positions. The first team corners,
0: Jamie Harry. Of course, mm, yeah, no surprise. We are still waiting for the autographed jersey Jamie Harry, we love you, we do <laughs> yeah we're yeah. we're big fans we we have we we got everything ready. It's ready to mount up on the wall. It's almost just become a thing now, like you yeah. I mean, you're, you're like, just
1: like unofficially the favorite player of the show.
0: two years from now, like if we're still doing the show, I don't know like wherever you'll be, we'll still be talking about yeah. you, and your legacy will live on, yes,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then uh Dean Leonard out of Calgary, second year guy corner, so good for him i mean that's that's impressive to get on there again don't know a ton about him just you know calgary's always got good dbs because they've always got good everything <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to extrapolate point in case on, <laughs> on special teams uh nico Defonte out of calgary is the place kicker curly giddens jr the returner brad mickluff yeah the punter Mikulof, yeah mickluff yeah okay we're gonna go with that mickluffin Ooh. Ooh. Uh, Maybe there's (laughs) something there. Let's workshop that. (laughs) (laughs) The second team offense. Okay, so we're out of. Oh, and, and you know, we'll also just mention the other major award winners. Coach of the Year, Greg Marshall. Well deserved. Second consecutive year, you know, undefeated season. Second consecutive Cup appearance with the one win last year.
0: Yep, twenty-three games. It, in a
1: row. It's supposed to just be a regular season award, and it is, but it's not. You know what I mean? Like you have to sort of look at the big thing because you had yeah. three undefeated coaches. Who's to say which is the best of those? Mm-hmm. Hard to know. But Greg Marshall's—I mean—resume over the last two years has been pretty nice.
0: And you, what, what would be interesting to—what would be interesting though—is if hypothetically, if they're not taking into account postseason success, which I'm sure they are, whether like you said, with other undefeated coaches out there in the regular season, whether that's, you know, the people voting on this award making a statement against the type of competition that, you know, Greg Marshall and his Western Mustangs had to take on in the regular season. I'm I'm assuming it probably has to do with the Vanier as well, but also something to take into account there, perhaps. It's an interesting thought, yeah.
1: And then the Russ Jackson Award, Mackenzie Ferguson from Western, second... I can't believe I forgot about my boy Nick Vannon and winning it last year. Sam linebacker and Mackenzie Ferguson. So now the second consecutive year where you have a kid who's won it from Western. Just telling you about the great student athletes we are at Western. We're just now we always have like three or four guys who are just ridiculous and like how do you do it kind of guys. Yeah. yeah. Mackenzie Ferguson's one of them. You know, just like an amazing student and obviously a, you know a very good player. So. Uh, another guy I coached way back in the day. I of course personally didn't coach him cause he was a defensive back and I was an offensive line coach, but on a junior Mustangs team. And then I coached and, uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun watching him sort of develop. You know, you, you, I always wonder, like, he's a small guy. Like I know he's fast and he's quick. Like I know he's smart as hell. Will he end up being able to sort of make up for just being kind of small? Well, mm. huh? he did. And, uh, he's been a lot of fun to watch and,
0: and you sit here now a, a proud mama hen.
1: <laughs> that's that's me that's me <laughs> yeah on my podcast you know <laughs> proud of the guy who's probably going to be a doctor in a couple years and well you tutored him uh, as well shit. right oh f- well of course, of course yeah. Yeah. literally I, I hand fed him the knowledge <laughs> uh so good for him awesome stuff and the uh the Gino Frackets award went to uh Peter Regimbald of Concordia that's for the um I think that's that's the, the volunteer, volunteer coach, coach yeah year. yeah because um, it, it says just here he's named the Assistant Coach of the Year. Oh, as selected by Football Canada. There you go. So when you're an Assistant Coach of the Year and, uh, and also a volunteer coach, you definitely are deserving. The other nominees, uh, Daniel Paquette of Bishops, Mike White of Ottawa, the defensive backs coach we've talked yeah. about before, and Sheldon Neald of uh, Regina, uh, just for clarity. And then on the Russ Jackson Award, I should have mentioned this as well, In fact, I should have mentioned it for all the other award categories. I just went over. The other nominees were uh, Cameron Davidson of Acadia. He's a running back. Of the RCQ. Jeremy Bilal-Lardy of Sherbrooke. And of Canada West, Jaden McCoy of Manitoba. For the Frank Tindall Trophy for Coach of the Year, the other nominees were, and you could probably guess this one, Wayne Harris of Calgary. Undefeated season. Undefeated season. season. Glenn Constantine of
0: Laval. Undefeated
1: season and Gary Waterman of Santa Fex. not an undefeated. Took season. out the would-be
0: undefeated team in Saint Mary's and then made your way to a national semifinal game.
1: That's true, and I think I think surprised a lot of people with yeah.
0: what they did in the conference, um,
1: largely on the, you know, on the back of like a very good run game, which was kind of fun to watch, a bit of a throwback, a little Western-esque. And uh, we do rookie of the year. Rookie of the year, very good call, very good call. <laughs> yes, one of the one of the big ones, the Peter Gorman, the Peter Gorman. Went to Tyson Philpott, one of the Philpott twins at Calgary. Receiver for them. 741 yards receiving. I mean, say no more. That's That's, incredible. That's awesome. I I kind of thought it would be the nominee from Canada West. Would have been Jonathan Rosary. Your dude. I'd forgotten about Tyson Philpott. Yeah. Um, Rosary, if you're unaware, was the running back from Alberta. A lot of fun to watch. Like, I mean, fantastic player. So definitely give him a look. Uh, Alberta is not maybe the best team, but they're not bad. They're just bad in the conference. Despite and some earlier takes on this podcast. Correct. There, there were some. There were some maybe hotter than necessary takes. You know, sometimes you just you accidentally put a couple too many <laughs> chilies in the in the in the in the stew, and you're just whoo boy, that's too spicy. And they were probably a little bit harsh on uh, Alberta at the beginning of the year. And probably a little harsh on the AUS. But, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, being being nice doesn't get you extra views. We want to be provocative. So uh, Tyson Philbot brings home the award. And the other nominees were from the AUS. Shedler Fervius. That is an interesting name for sure. Out of St. Mary's. He's a receiver. Of the RSEQ, Vincent uh, Forbes Montbleu from Laval. He's a receiver. I'm pretty sure I nailed that pronunciation. I liked it. Holy crap, I'm good. And uh, from the OUA, Jack Hinsperger, we knew that. The I think you butchered that one, though. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're just trying to balance me out. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, the linebacker, who had a very great rookie year, obviously, and and uh, was. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the best defense, but he did have a nice impact on that unit. So well,
0: I think it was a testament to what he did this year when, on occasion, when it was brought up that, oh, yeah, he's in his first year, it kind of just slipped all our minds. We're like, he kind of just has the the look and the feel of a guy who's just been in the league doing this for a while. Yeah, know?
1: well, and he's in a unit with veterans, you know, Curtis Gray and Michael Reed, and he was in that unit seamlessly and yeah. making a lot of plays, you know, almost making casual viewers forget about the other guys in a way. And yeah, absolutely. And obviously, the name Hinsberger is one we knew from the year before because of his brother. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, absolutely great. Uh, a great group of of nominees, but... Tyson Philpott, wow. 741 yards as a rookie. That's wild.
0: You know, when, you're, when your quarterback's throwing 3,200, I guess, you know, someone's got to get those yards, right? But, uh, yeah. Know. And
1: so, and that was him. And moving on to the uh, second team All-Stars, uh, that was also Hunter Carl, who's one of the receivers. He was a fourth-year guy mm-hmm. who, I'm not sure what his stats were, but he obviously was... A pretty big part of that year for Sinagra. Uh, backpedaling to the offensive line. My boy Jesse Gibbons gets second team. Ah, uh, Jesse, they robbed you, buddy. Whatever. Um, <laughs> he's going to be a high pick in the CFL draft, I predict, and uh, and he'll be gone. You know, ninety-something percent chance. He's just such a good player. Yeah. And you never know; the guys come back for all sorts of reasons, but uh, I would predict he's gone. The other tackle, Carter O'Donnell out of Alberta, pretty sure that's their right tackle, really stands out on film. Probably the fastest offensive lineman in the country I've seen. Like He has got remarkable quickness. Sky's the limit for him. And third-year guy, so we'll probably see him at East-West. Yes, we should be seeing him at East-West, and I expect we'll try to cover that. Oh, yeah. Where oh. is that this year? Do we know? No. No, we do not. <laughs> it might be in Laval. Uh, so... Probably won't be able to cover that. But Maybe we'll do the, just the regional here in Toronto. Yeah, Who knows? there you go. <laughs> and the second team offensive lineman, the interior guys, uh, Jacob uh, Saja. Yeah. C-Z-A-J-A. So they made that as hard as possible. Now, fifth-year guy out of Santa Fex, they really ran the ball effectively at Santa Fex this year, like extremely effectively. That's what they did. Their offensive line, okay, couldn't really hold up to Laval. But Not many offensive lines can. No, most don't. Yeah. And they were a good unit. So I, where I, I may have preferences outside of AUS players, you can't really take anything away from them. They did the best they could in the conference they could and in the conference they were in, did pretty well. Jonathan Zamora is the other Santa Fex kid, the center, third year guy. Don't know much about him, but we do know the offensive line was good. And then Matlin Riley from Saskatchewan. Yeah. Stud. Says here he's near three, so we should see him in East West. I thought he was in near four. He's great. He's really great. Another extremely quick offensive lineman. If he's at East West, I'd be keeping my eyes on him. The other receivers, Reggie Sibasu out of Montreal, fifth year guy. Feels like he's been all Canadian several years. He a Rookie of the Year nominee, if not winner. I thought he was. I think he was the winner his year. You know, he's been around forever, and uh, he'll be. Uh, would have thought he'd be in the CFL. I didn't think he'd stick around uh, for a fifth year, but he's at Montreal. So, um, Get I him guess, on a
0: UFA contract.
1: Yeah. We'll see what happens with him. The uh, the other receivers, Dylan Schrott out of Manitoba, fifth-year guy. Gordon Lamb out of Waterloo. That's second nice to team see. Second-team receiver. It is nice to see. Yeah, Some good sure. recognition, well-deserved. Obviously had a great year, over 100 yards average
0: a game. Similarly, kind of how we were talking about uh, Phil when you have a quarterback with the type of production that you know either Sinagra or Ford has yes. in the season, your receivers are gonna get their gonna get their stats. Yeah, uh, so
1: rising tide lifts all ships. Not really fitting, sort of, but kind of. No,
0: uh, no, I'm I'm down. You're I'm down. down yeah. yeah, I
1: mean it was a it was a full harvest. Uh, for, yeah. Yeah. No. Let's move on. Should have planned it out. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Jordan Sokolokchuk, running back from Santa FX, fifth-year kid, second-team running back, and Gabrielle Polan from Sherbrooke, fourth-year guy, other running back for the second-team. Yeah, okay, sure. Hugo Richard, second-team quarterback. This one kind
0: of – it's kind of going to grind us to the, the yeah. stop a little bit, right? Well, we kind of already discussed some of the, um, you know.
1: Yeah, dynamics of play. Yeah. Fifth-year quarterback of Laval. Marvick's season, fifth-year guy. He's a good player. We won't, we won't go into <laughs> it anymore. <laughs> You've heard our take. You can rewind if you need to hear it again. It's obviously pretty compelling. The defense for the second team, Trayvon James and Thomas Grant, a defensive tackle, good players. Not the same as the first-team players. No. Like I mean, Trayvon James is a run stuffer, and he's very good at it. Like, in a sort of a natural – defense scheme you'd kind of want one Trayvon James type and one of the Maccabrota Desjardins type right and that's kind of your traditional like one tech three tech exactly if you happen to have two great three techs yeah. you could make it work <laughs> it's not that hard <laughs> yeah but yeah. but I mean that, that's sort of the more traditional look is to have a guy who's a one a zero like Trayvon James and don't know much about Thomas Grant
0: I still would have loved to see I would still would love to see Bowen get on this yeah yeah
1: yeah me too oh well he's a good player I mean, there's only four spots. Yeah. The defensive ends are Joel Van Pelt and Tristan Kronkowitz. I Remember Tristan? He was. Oh, he'd, yeah, he. Yeah, uh, he almost killed Merchant. Yeah, well, and <laughs> on a couple of occasions he did. Yeah. A uh, couple of couple of sacks on the game. He played a really nice game. Nice tall, long defensive end. Pretty quick. Decent hand play. Nice player. Definitely going to be an interesting prospect. Kronkwitz
0: sure. and maybe Jewish. We got maybe got to look into this. Well, certainly Polish. There's oh, nothing yeah. else. I okay. mean,
1: yeah. The, the, or I mean. Slavic, I mean, that that W I C Z, yeah, a, you know, you, you got to wonder what's going on with that.
0: I'll, I'll get my people, we'll look into it. Okay, yeah, do a full
1: investigation. <laughs> Joel Van Pelt of Calgary, fifth year guy, another kind of I think of as being like a long defensive lineman, too, kind of in the same vein as Karankowitz, and uh, a nice player who's been a nice player for Calgary for several years now. The linebackers for the second team you have Boston Rowe, fifth year guy out of Calgary, Brad Herbst. Uh, fifth-year guy out of Saint Mary's and Luke Coral, fifth-year guy out of Guelph. So, My dude. a nice, a nice group of backers. Uh, who we've we've seen some of those names before. Rowe and not Coral on the All Canadian, but just you know we're familiar with him. You especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the defensive backs. The safety is Danny Valente, second team. Pretty nice. Yep. Uh, Second-year kid, mm-hmm. v- obviously a very talented player. Was worried he might go under the radar just a little bit this year because he is young, but. And he makes great plays, and that shows up on film pretty quickly. I mean, he's just so mobile, right? Like, when you have a safety, you can really, truly be sideline to sideline in the Canadian Football League. That's rare. Yeah. So he is um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great one, and uh, very excited to see what the future holds for him. Shea Weeks out of Manitoba, another second-year guy, half. Uh, it's, that's interesting, because I, I remember that name from recruiting. He was, you know, everyone knew he was going to be a big deal, and it didn't take him very long to get there. Nate Rostek is the other second team half out of Mount Allison. Another name I remember from the recruiting days at Western. He um he's a baller. And uh, it's, you know, again, AUS, so we you know, you never know if he could be one of those players who if you were transposed into a different conference would stand up, but solid player. Yeah. Emil and Bleska Kambamba round out the second teamers uh on the back end at the cornerbacks. We
0: got to see both of them play
1: just a few days ago.
0: Yeah, we talked about Chennier's impact in that game, especially. Yeah, and uh, that's
1: that's really about it. So, oh, and this this special teamer. So we have Mark Leggio, David Cote, and Travel Pinto. MT Dog! Uh, the punter, place kicker, and returner, respectively, and that rounds out the second team
0: of all stars. Very nice list. Very nice list. A couple, obviously, that you know, well. Perhaps in, in some of the bigger positions is where we had some, well, some gripes, but overall, fantastic. Can't really hit on it. Yeah. No, there's,
1: there, I mean, yeah. Moving on, I think we should just quickly comment on the head coaching carousel going around the OUA. Yes. Because there has been a new spot open up and one spot close up since we last spoke to you. And the one opening up would be the head coaching position at the University of Windsor. Mm-hmm. Joe Demore has stepped down and- I think this is truly a he stepped down, he was not forced out situation. We'll give you the update on that if we find that to be not true. But that's the first take that I've heard. Right, and because it was a little surprising, because you think he had more term on his contract, which again had to be paid out even if you know if you were if you were fired. And I, I don't see any reason why he would step down otherwise. And um yeah, I think. um this is interesting because th- this is that is a tough job for a head coach right now. Like This is not the most attractive job in the OUA, uh, especially by comparison to the other ones open. But there is potential there because we know they have good young coaches. Obviously, uh, your boy Nesbitt mm-hmm. is the offensive coordinator, and he's doing a nice job with their, their young quarterback. Yep. So there is a little bit of an opportunity there in Windsor to build something decent. If you can fire up recruiting and build a fence around Windsor, which <laughs> has been traditionally hard to do with Western coming in and taking yeah. a decent share of talent and you know the other schools of the OUA taking some
0: and and I think we, we discussed this a little bit beforehand I think it's a, a, a perhaps it's wrong to assume that there isn't talent in the area because I you know growing up playing OVFL football the Essex Ravens from that area were always one of the top teams more to just as you mentioned perhaps players just you know you know seeking to go to, you know, bigger schools or, you know, more storied programs and just leaving the area as opposed to it just being, you know, they're not being ta- homegrown talent there. They yeah, definitely get the there players. There
1: is homegrown talent. The issue yeah. is and it's the same issue that Western has with London is there's so much talent you can't keep it all. Yeah. The difference is Western has the ability to recruit nationally in a way that Windsor just can't. Mm-hmm. And not not even nationally, just in regions outside of their sort of their their main fiefdom if you will I mean like outside of the yeah outside of London Yeah, Windsor probably isn't going to be as, as successful relatively speaking to other even just middle of the pack programs in terms of recruiting outside of their region because again Windsor is a long way away for Ontario standards for a lot of people and it's just yeah it's not the most attractive place to be that being said they do have some good coaches they do have some good talent it's not impossible. It's just hard. Yeah. Hard place to win. So we'll see what happens there. This, you know, very well likely could be a first-time head coaching job for someone. You know, we look at Guelph and McMaster and Queens, and we think these are the kind of jobs that will command a coach who's already kind of established himself. And... Well, yeah, and you never know. Like they, they could go young coordinator, make a coordinator a first-time coach, or not even necessarily a young coordinator, but they could make a coordinator a first-time coach. But they do command a first-time head coach job. Yeah, or sorry, they, uh, they, they do command a a, a a head coach with previous experience. Yeah, pardon me. Well, that's I mean, that, Windsor that, does not.
0: Yeah, I mean that is sort of the route that Guelph did go with putting in Todd Galloway, but that was. A little bit On of an a, interim basis. Exactly. It was a bit of a quick turnaround with um on McNeil an leaving. Uh,
1: that's a very big yeah. asterisk. Yeah. I, my understanding is, and I don't know if this is true, but Guelph probably has offered this job to Blake Nil. I know Blake Nil's sort of on thin ice, you might say, out at UBC. Both of his coordinators may or may – well, one we know won't be back, but I, he might be losing both his coordinators. His time at UBC might be – I'm sure he's not being forced out, but he just might want to move on. Mm. And if that's the case, I mean, Blake Nell's a pretty great coach. So that would be an interesting hire for Guelph. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to take that, but just the thought. And then there are, you know, there are other coaches out there. You know, someone mentioned to me the other day, Jeff Cummins at UBC, or sorry, at Acadia, rather. Mm. Jeff Cummins is a very successful coach. He's been at Acadia for a long time. And wouldn't it be nice for a guy like that a guy who you know is known to be very charismatic and to be a great you know players' coach to be someone who players love to play for if he could have all of a sudden the resource advantages of a Guelph mm. because you think about the a u s a big problem of the a u s it's not about the people it's not about the you know the coaches or the players it's not even about the facilities it's it's literally just about dollars and cents and having just a budget that's way smaller than anyone in on- or anyone who's competing in Ontario or the ROCQ or the, you know, out West. So if you could have someone like that, a really well-established coach come to a place like wealth, you never know, that might be a really interesting formula. Mm. Not saying Todd Galloway is absolutely someone they shouldn't consider, but just someone with a resume like Cummins, that would be kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. And in your mentioning of Blake Nill, you said that he's already losing one of his coordinators if you hadn't heard, that is, Steph Pataskie It is now confirmed. You know, the prodigal son is returning to his to McMaster, where he won the Vanier, yeah. took him to the back-to-back uh, Vanier Cups. Uh, you know, the very, move.
1: very obvious thing has yeah. happened. The thing that we all were like, yeah, this is gonna happen. Yeah, that thing has happened. The guy who lives in Hamilton, whose whose family home is like, mm-hmm. you know, a stone's throw from McMaster's campus. Has decided he will move and come to, uh, or well, not move. He will make the move to come back to McMaster. Yeah. So,
0: and you know, I think with how how much you know the firing of Greg Knox affected the players. You know, it's from an X's and O's standpoint. You know, this is the move that makes sense, in, absolutely. But I also think from a, a player personnel standpoint. Not to say there aren't other incredibly worthy coaches and talented coaches. you already named a few that are available out there on the market or perhaps could become available. I think with you know, the, connection, the obvious connection to Mac football and to Hamilton, this was a, a, just the only, I think the only move that they could make realistically. Again, the super obvious move. I yeah. mean, I,
1: you know, I've heard some whispers about the way that he left like way back in the day, way back in the day, a couple years ago, feels like forever ago, doesn't it? Uh, to go to the CFL. Don't know. Maybe he rubbed some people the wrong way with that. Mm. Coaching is so difficult, right? It's so fickle because y- you will have to go and recruit and recruit and recruit. And then, yeah, you get a job offer you need to take. What are you going to do? You gotta take it, right? So
0: yeah, unless there was just bad words shared. I mean, he can't hate on a guy for just no. pursuing something greater.
1: Everyone, everyone who has played for Coach P seems to love Coach P, and there's I think there's a very obvious reason for that. Yeah,
0: and I think there's probably a lot of people who you know saw him on the panel uh, during the Vanier Cup. You know, obviously a very intelligent man speaks. You know, incredibly, um, you know, speaks so well about the game of football. Uh, it's you know, it 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 clearly shows
1: so. Yeah, so the obvious hires happened, and it's unclear how that will affect the coaches who've remained on uh, payroll at McMaster, even in Greg Knox's absence. My imagination says everyone will stay there. They've got a good group of coaches. They've got a good group of players. Excited to see what they can do with that with Coach P at the helm. Mm. Um, Moving on, the other vacancies that we've noted before, uh, Queens and and ostensibly Guelph, because we don't really know, like, are they going to hire someone? Are they? No. You yeah. I, I think they are, but it's it's still not a that's not a hundred percent clear, or hasn't been made clear. I, I mean, th- I I haven't like he- the ads are posted. Everything is the interviews are happening. Yeah.
0: yeah, I I haven't heard anything. The only thing that caught me for a loop was uh, going on. I think Facebook and seeing uh, my friend, former teammate, Ga- um, sorry not Gabe Daniel Ferraro, uh, mentioned that he's now going to be the head coach of the Guelph Junior Griffins the opf whatever the super league is um but on just first glance i was like wait did they just make daniel Ferraro the head coach at 12 and daniel you're listening you know that's by no means not a shot at you of course but old would strategy been... <laughs> god we'll see how it pays <laughs> off for them yeah something like that um but i think that's pretty much the you know the the carousel as it as it sits right now or i guess carousels don't sit they remain in motion well, I mean, when you unplug them, I guess. Yeah. When well, no one's there. But this one's this one's moving, baby. And uh, I think the most interesting part is gonna see. You know, I don't. I think it's not a matter of if. I think it's when Sheehan lands a spot somewhere. Cause, it, I can't imagine. In what capacity? Well, I, I think as a coach. I. I okay. He, okay. As, as a head coach. As a head. I, as yes, a as head a, coach. As a head coach. I, I just. He,
1: Th- as a head coach
0: i think his his legacy speaks so so well about obviously so his there capacity. aren't that many options so you think he's going to windsor guelph no i mean fair enough i mean wh- i don't know it's just it would be surprising if well, what do you com- think's more likely of those two windsor or guelph i mean guelph would guelph. be a fun little i mean guelph yeah, guelph, is, for, guelph for, is, for, is the answer yeah and for for more than just I think the the talent that's there and perhaps the money they can throw his way, I think that if he's unhappy with his letting being let go from Queens, going to Guelph is a nice way of sticking it to them. A very nice way. Uh, we'll see if that happens. It would just it it would surprise me if he yeah I, 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 you're right. I guess perhaps it, if he might not be a head coach next year just with whatever is available. It would just it would just seem weird to not see him in some capacity involved with a team. In OU football, maybe I'm just being nostalgic. But. Maybe. And,
1: I mean, I, you know, Guelph might be looking at the young coordinators like uh, Sheehan or Snyder. It'd be interesting to see if they brought in Pat as a head coach, Ryan, because there's a vacancy at the OC position, as the offensive coordinator, and then let Pat groom Ryan one final time to take over that
0: job in a couple of years. Yeah. That'd be kind of interesting. And it was, it was, Some good continuity there, possibly. Well, what was funny um, with that vacancy – at the offensive coordinator position, um, being uh, 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 Jean-Francois, uh, we kind of talked about this whether that would affect how Guelph was going to be able to recruit out of out of Quebec and out of CJP. And I think you made the you know the point that. Once you get the ball rolling, once you get these guys in here, that's really the best recruiting tactic is when you just have guys from that area. Yeah. And the proof's in the pudding. I think they've already signed a couple of guys since the end of the season. Siphoning Quebecois players is a lot like siphoning gasoline out of a tank. Yeah. <laughs> once you, starts... you get
1: it, you get it coming,
0: and then it just keeps going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think that's pretty much uh, what we have. Um, that's it. That's On all the, we got for you. Yeah.
1: If you want more, too bad.
0: Watch the NFL or the NCAA. Yeah. Because we don't have anything more to tell you about this season, I get. And so I guess just on that note, um, for at the fifty-five, our show, we're going to continue to put out content, perhaps not on a weekly basis. We'll be finding our pace with that. We're not really sure what it's going to look like. I know we've we've teased doing these postmortems for seemingly about a month now. Yeah. Now that the season's all well and done, we can really you know dig our claws into um, into the teams and see you know, what we think is going to happen in the years to come as well. Any big news, um, Canadian football, uh, youth sports related that pops up, uh, we will be there for you um, with everything we know.
1: Yeah, Canada Football Chat already does a decent job yeah. covering recruiting. So I don't know if we might have a look at that, but what are we really going to add over and above what they have? I'm not sure. So. Yeah. We'll have a look, maybe do the post mortems for you, because again, we've been teasing those for a while, Zach. <laughs> right. but uh, you know, those those take a while to do correctly, and are basically just research intensive. So yeah. there's there's also no timeline. There's nothing sort of urgent about that. You probably are, if not done with football at this point, you're there's a there's always a bit of like ah uh, maybe we'll see if I care in a month. Yeah, wow. exactly. know I know I know some coaches feel that way, and they got to keep recruiting. They just want to get a sudden vacation in,
0: but. Yeah, so things are going to inevitably slow down here as they will across Canada with football. But, you know, we will be hit there for you as things start to percolate and pick up a little bit more. Um, so I can't say we'll be there for you next week. We'll be there for you next time at the 55.